Welcome to Air Interview. I'm Mike, and this episode we chat with Stuart Reed on his USAF Exchange Tour flying the T-38 Talon. As well as the Talon, he also chats about flying the Jaguar GR1, the Tornado GR1, the E3 Century, the Domini, and the Lancaster Dakota with the BBMF. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash Interview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. So please enjoy. So Stuart, when did you first become interested in aviation? It's a lifelong thing. My father was a wartime teenager, grew up during the Second World War, and he had a strong affection for those who flew the aircraft that saved us from oblivion and the threat of invasion from Adolf Hitler. And he had a very infectious enthusiasm for aeroplanes and all things technical, and I kind of picked that up, and it's been with me for as long as I can remember. So what year did you join your RAF, and could you tell us some of the aircraft you trained on? Yes, I joined, actually joined the RAF um, and when I went to university, at the University Air Squadron, I joined as a, as a cadet pilot. And uh, that was in 1976, and then in 1978, having applied to join the Royal Air Force full-time as a university cadet, was accepted as a university cadet. Graduated in 1979, completed my initial officer training at the Royal Air Force College at Cranwell. So the, the second aircraft I trained on was the Jet Provost at Cranwell. I should have mentioned the first aircraft was the Bulldog T-1 at University of Birmingham Air Squadron in the 70s. It was a new aircraft into service, actually, when I, when I joined in the, in the mid-70s. It had replaced the Chipmunk in the University Air Squadron role, and the Chipmunk had graduated onto the Air Experience flight work with ATC cadets and the like. So I did my elementary training on the Bulldog, 160-plus hours on a piston aircraft, and then went on to Cranwell, as I said, following on from initial officer training, onto flying training at Cranwell on the Jet Provost T-5. The initial phase of that is a phase that all pilots go through, which is to train you in, in all the basic aspects of aviation. And then following that period of training, you, you get assimilated as to which type of aircraft you're best suited to, be it fast jet, multi-engine or rotary. I was very fortunate and was selected to go to the fast jet side, what we call Group 1 Phase 1. So the second phase of your basic training prepared you for going on to Group 1 fast jets. On completion of that... I went to Valley, number four flying training school, to train on the Hawk for advanced flying training, which is teaching you about the high-speed aspects of high-performance aircraft and how they fly in relation to the the basic aircraft that you've come off previously. From there to Chivener, number two tactical weapons unit at RAF Chivener in Devon, which is where now it's accepted that you've learned how to be a pilot. You've been given your wings, albeit they're awarded to you provisionally, subject to you attaining attaining the appropriate status on a squadron. You then go on to learn how to use an aeroplane as a weapon system, both as a, an attack aircraft for attacking targets on the ground and in air-to-air combat. So you learn how to be the basic fighter disciplines, basic ground attack disciplines, etc. On completion of that, I was very lucky. The aircraft I had always wanted to fly, certainly latterly during my days at the UAS with the Jaguar, initially it was the Phantom, because the Phantom was in the ground attack role in the 70s in Germany. But then when the Jaguar came into being, the Jaguar looked the part. It was one of those aircraft that was sharp and pointy and looked exactly what a fast jet ought to look like. So that was the aircraft I had the the ambition to to fly and was very, very lucky to get get selected to go to the Jaguar OCU late in 1981. So what was the Jaguar actually like to fly? It was, it was nice. It was, um, the controls were nicely harmonised. It was a delight to fly at low level. It was a nice stable platform. It had a very high wing loading, so the, it was very comfortable, particularly in turbulent conditions. It kind of cut through the turbulence, and it provided you with a very stable platform from which to deliver the weapons that you were carrying. So it was very, 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 very good at low level, very comfortable in that environment. Where it got more interesting is where you started to manoeuvre it on the limit. Uh, the reason being is all sorts of things could start to conspire to against you if you weren't careful, such that ultimately you could lose control of it if you weren't careful. That was also um, predicated on the, the configuration of the aeroplane. It's all to do with the way the mass is concentrated in the fuselage, the fact it had short, stubby wings that were set quite well back on the fuselage. Um, every aircraft has a vertical stabiliser. Uh, for those who travel on airlines a lot, the vertical stabiliser is not there to present the logo of the airline with which you are flying. It has a, f- a physical role to play in maintaining directional stability for the aircraft, and they all do so. Every aircraft has a vertical stabiliser, one, two, or three in the case of some, such as a Constellation, to keep the aircraft going along the desired flight path and such that the pilot doesn't lose control. 
with the, with the Jaguar as you approached the AOA limits, directional stability started to suffer. And it was possible if you ignored the, the AOA limits to lose control of the aircraft and, and, and possibly lose, lose the aircraft completely. And better men than me have come to grief um, in, in, in mishandling the aeroplane or, or losing the aircraft as a result of what was going on when manoeuvring it on the, on the limits. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us about your time on 31 Squadron? Yes, yeah, so uh, I'd always wanted to go to Germany. It was one of those things when I went through training. Uh, Germany in those days, height of the Cold War, was the front line. And to go to Germany was the icing on the cake. It's, um, you haven't made it yet. You've certainly proceeded through your training uh, to get to the stage you're at. So I uh, went off to 31, which was at Bruggen. Bruggen was where I wanted to go. And it was, for me, this was it. It was the culmination of all my training and was the, the dream come true you're flying the aircraft you always wanted to fly in the location you wanted to fly on one of the most famous squadrons in the RAF it didn't get any better than that uh, that's not to say I didn't find it hard work I found it very very hard it wasn't easy and uh, but I it was it was a, a great aeroplane and a great unit to, to cut your teeth as, a, as, a, as an aviator you learnt an awful lot very very quickly and, and you had to adapt it was a very hard school Mm-hmm. and you, the learning environment was very, very tough, and it was a very steep learning curve. So could you tell us about um, some of the flying in Germany? Was it different to the UK? Um, at the time, it was all about um, a posture that was relating to the possibility of a threat from the east. Um, obviously, the height of the Cold War, we've got the, uh, the Iron Curtain, so-called, running between Germany, as it was across Germany at that time. It was divided into east and west Germany. And you had this clash of ideologies. So the flying was all centred around what the Jaguar role would be in Germany. And Bruggen packed a huge amount of firepower in those days. You know, some 70-plus aircraft, all the ordnance they carried. And they also had a tactical strike role as well. So that the firepower on the station was, was pretty formidable. But our role was primarily a low-level attack, low-level strike, and the, the ordnance at the time, the primary conventional weapons that were carried at the time that were carried were the BL755 cluster bomb, a thousand-pound freefall bomb, and the thousand-pound retard bomb. The retarders are on the bomb in order to separate the delivery aircraft from the bomb as it falls away, such that you don't frag yourself, as it were, with the, your own ordnance debris as it detonates underneath the aircraft, explodes underneath the uh, on the target. Excuse. Do you ever conduct uh, any DACT while in Germany? Oh yeah, all the time. It, it became a bread and butter. You, you would often do, uh, you would come across uh, combat air patrols. We had Phantoms, the F-4s, 19 and 92 squadrons down at Wildenroth. They would carry out low-level combat air patrols, the German Air Force, the Dutch Air Force. So all of the time you came up against potentially um, some affiliation scenario where uh, a, a potential aggressor aircraft would attempt to engage the, the, the force that was coming towards it, be they the ground attack aircraft in the form of the Jaguars in my day. So yes, it was routine. Uh, initially, you learn how to go through the techniques and procedures that are required in order to engage or to try to defeat these aircraft. But your um, rule one of the fight is avoid it if you possibly can. Um, and then if, if things go downhill from there, then to try to negate the threat that's being brought up against you. So a fill was a very important part of your training. Mm-hmm. So how did the Jaguar fend the Uh <laughs> it depends on the... Well, firstly, as I've said, rule one of the fight is to try to avoid it. it firstly, if you were, if you were seen, um, you, the first thing you had to do was try to turn towards the aircraft that was um, presenting a threat to you. As I said, the Jaguar was pretty down on power uh, and you needed the afterburner an awful lot. You needed to use it in order to, to get the turn performance that you needed, particularly if you were at heavy weight. It didn't turn well at all at heavy weight. And this is where the relationship of understanding angle of attack and how you're manoeuvring the aeroplane, particularly on the limit, came to the fore because it was very easy. Um, the aircraft would buff it anyway and all the usual clues and physical symptoms of operating an aircraft on a limit that you'd learnt during training now didn't apply anymore. Um, the Jaguar was, was, had its inherent characteristics which, as I said, could result in loss of control of the aircraft if you weren't careful. So you manoeuvre on the alpha limit depending upon the configuration and load at the time and, and just did your best. Um, if you're up against an F-16, not good. Um, if you were up against an F-4, if you could, the idea is to get separation between you and the, the, the aircraft that's trying to engage you. Um, if you can do that 
with to the with the best will in the world and and ultimately you you might survive but it it wasn't a comfortable aircraft to conduct dact with so how long did you spend in Germany, and did you enjoy your time in the Jaguar? I did. It was it was it was very hard work, as I've said. It wasn't easy. Um, very very steep learning curve. It was an excellent aeroplane, though, for a, a, an ab initio pilot such as myself to cut your teeth on. You learned an awful lot about how to you know things to look out for, priorities when you're flying an aeroplane, how to manage it, how to look after it, how to look after yourself uh, and your survival. And as I said, f- many far better men than me came to grief as a result of. Uh, the attrition rate and the, the, the we we lost quite a few jaguars in those days, and so you're you became very much conscious of of how you're operating it, where you were, when to look out, when to look in, how to manage the sortie, particularly at high workload rates. Um, so it was a very good aeroplane for that, and yes, I did enjoy it for that for that reason. But it was it was always a challenge, and I was always conscious of the fact that the aircraft could bite. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you have that always at the back of your mind. And consequently, to say I was comfortable with it is probably not the right word. I was never entirely comfortable with it because you're always conscious of the fact that the, the aircraft would not give you the cues that you needed sometimes, the physical cues that you're approaching the limit. So you needed to be aware of what you're doing at all times. Mm-hmm. So how many hours did you get in Jack? Uh, 550. Not that many, really. It was um, because I, it was taken out of service, and consequently, um, it was the the final days of the Jaguar on 31 Squadron in Germany for me. So after the Jaguar, could you tell us what happened? Yes, the uh, the we were all we went for roll disposal. Uh, there was a cut-off of experience. I think if you'd done less than two years on the aeroplane, you were going to get re-rolled to the Jaguar on another squadron, either at Bruggen or more probably more likely back to Coltishol, which was still the stronghold of the Jaguar at the time. For me, I was on a what was known as a permanent commission. I'd been a university cadet, so I was on a permanent commission. And I was one of two guys in that position. And because the tornado operational training, there were two phases to it. There was the trinational tornado training establishment at Cottesmore and then the tornado weapons conversion unit at Honington those combined together were almost nine months of, of training it was a very expensive course to put pilots through and the air force quite rightly was keen to ensure that it would get an adequate return of service so I, my choice was very limited when I came off the Jaguar I'd had more than two years experience on the airplane the likelihood of going back to the aircraft at Coltishall was extremely low so I jumped at the chance to go to the tornado because I was in the right bracket at the right time and, and far better to, to opt and try to get to something that I know I could get than fight hard to get something that I probably couldn't get and then probably get something I didn't want. So, so I, I elected to go to the tornado. It would keep me in Germany, which I enjoyed at the time, keep me on the front line, which I enjoyed also. And also it was the, the tornado was brand new. It was cutting edge. It was all very much at the forefront of RAF attack operations in those days. So, yes, the tornado was the aircraft I was, was sent to. So after the tornado in 1987, could you tell us what happened here? Yes, I, well, I went back from my conversion. I was detached back to the UK to do the tornado course, came back to 17 Squadron. Um, basically, I was very keen at this stage now to try to get a professional qualification for want of a better expression. And the, 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 the quality, the, the, the qualification of choice was normally to become a qualified weapons instructor uh, and, or a qualified flying instructor. It was quite funny because the, the, the qualified weapons instructors were always very disparaging of the qualified flying instructors. So, but I, I thought, well, fewer people want to become qualified flying instructors. I had also been told many years before by one of my instructors in my training days that if you ever want to keep flying become a qualified flying instructor you will they will always find a role for you and you know he was absolutely right anyway i i, I volunteered for cfs uh, with the, the the caveat that i would go to the hawk at valley and fortunately i was my, my choice was accepted and I, I was posted in 1987 from the tornado in germany to become an instructor on the hawk at ref valley in north wales um, it was a, a superb tour again you you learn so much about yourself when you're learning to be a flying instructor, it's not so much the, the, the course that teaches you to be an instructor, it's flying with students. When you do your CFS course, you're just given a few rudiments to hang your hat on and a few background notes and a few ideas that will work for you and, and things from which to go forward. But what teaches you about training pilots is flying with students. And, and I found that thoroughly enjoyable for so in so many ways and it was it was it was great fun the aircraft was superb as well the hawk was a delight it did exactly as it says on the packet 
it's it was at the time the fast jet trainer it was superb and uh, and i loved it it was very serviceable i think i only got out of one um you could fly it it would it would take a lot of stick it was a it was a superb airplane loved it uh, talk us through how you got this uh, position. Well, it was something you pick up on when you when you when you go through your you finish your training. Well, not finish your training. As I said, you never finish your training, but you finish your early days of training. Is, is that is that there are exchange and these are where you as an RAF pilot can go and fulfil the role and become part of another air force in another nation. And for me, this was oh, that's a, that sounds like an interesting thing to do. In fact, a fascinating thing to do. It's something I'd really quite like to do. Uh, which just happened when I was at Valley. There was an appointment which I became aware of, which was for an exchange assignment to uh, Randolph Air Force Base in Texas, which is the, the American, effectively the American CFS. It's their pilot instructor training center. And for that, the qualifications were quite specific. And in fact, if you looked at the role you flew at Valley, that primarily was probably about the role that you, you had to be engaged in at the time in order to fulfill the requirements for going to Randolph. So I worked very hard. I made it, let it be known to the chain of command at the time that that was what I wanted to do. Uh, put it on my annual confidential report and all this sort of thing and, and was very, very lucky to get selected to go. So can you tell us when you first flew over there and what your initial thoughts were when you arrived? Right. Um, I, we left the United Kingdom at the end of 1989. We flew out on the... The, the procedure was you went for a briefing as an exchange officer. Uh, you were briefed about what the roles were. You were effectively uh, you know, an ambassador for your service in another country. And your, your job was to basically become part of their system, but retain, obviously, everything I'd learnt in the RAF, in the background, just to sort of compare the, the two ways and means of doing things. We flew out uh, on a VC-10, actually. went to Washington initially, arrived in Washington. We had a few days there, which consisted of some in-briefings. You're managed by the British Embassy when you're over there. Defence staff will look after you when you're, when you're being um, assigned to uh, uh, an overseas exchange appointment such as that. We then flew down to San Antonio, which is where Randolph is. San Antonio is a very military town. Uh, you come to know these things. It was a, obviously a city I'd heard of. Never having never been there, southern Texas, the first thing that hits you is the heat. Even in the winter, it's a very warm place to be. Um, you have the Gulf of Mexico to the south, so it's a very humid, subtropical environment. So San Antonio, a very military town. Uh, we arrived there and went into temporary accommodation while we got our domestic side sorted out. So can you talk us through your ground training and how it differed from the RAF? Um, you have, well, their ground school is referred to as academics, where you, you again, it's, it's, it's pretty similar in that respect. You go through the technical size of the aircraft, what we refer to as emergency procedures, etc. Their emphasis on their Dash 1. The Dash 1 is the American manual for the aircraft that you fly. So every aircraft type has a Dash 1. And the Dash 1 sets out all the technical aspects of the aircraft, uh, how it all works. Um, it's sometimes not quite as informative as you expect it to be. RAF manuals were very informative and quite technical. Sometimes some of the technical aspects were glossed over more than others, but what I did like was the presentation of information in the form of what they called notes, cautions and warnings. Uh, warnings were potentially hazardous, cautions were something to be aware of, and notes were something just to keep in your hip pocket because it was just um, something to be useful and be aware of. So it was um, subtly different in the way it was conducted and the information that was presented to you, but largely uh, pretty much the same format. Mm -hmm. So what was your initial thoughts of the T-38 and what was it actually designed for? Well, the T-38 was a Northrop aircraft, originally envisaged as a, a fighter-type aeroplane. At the time, Northrop were exploring the possibility of creating a, a, a fighter-type aircraft built around the J-79, which was the field standard military engine in service with the United States Air Force at the time, powered many aircraft types, but it's a big thing. And General Electric presented uh, an idea to Northrop to utilise two much smaller engines to make a small, lightweight fighter-type aeroplane, uh, the J-85, which I believe was a cruise missile engine. Um, but it would be employed for use with afterburners and the like. Um, Northrop eventually decided to not continue with the project. The, I think it was the N156 or something like that. The project in its form with the J79 and, and then pursued the idea of building a lightweight fighter aircraft for utilising the two General Electric engines. Um, out of that, the fighter idea was shelved for a while 
But then there became a requirement for an advanced trainer, a, a, a trainer which would introduce pilots uh, in the United States Air Force to high B flight. There was literally no jump really between the basic aircraft as were serving at the time and the front end types. And you needed a, a supersonic trainer and it was the world's first supersonic trainer. So the T-38 was a modified fighter aircraft with two cockpits in tandem and utilising the design which is very much similar to an F-5 in plan form. Uh, quite a different aeroplane to a Hawk and, and quite some different handling characteristics. Quite old technology by modern standards uh, lots of mechanical interlocks and things like that to, to keep you try to keep you out of trouble but you were briefed about what could happen if they failed and how to deal with the problems if they did occur yeah. so you mentioned supersonic flight could that do it in um, level flight yes it could it would uh, it would hit half our burners it was about 1.3 um we didn't do it routinely it was quite interesting unlike the hawk where we would take it out over the irish sea and introduce students to the concept of supersonic flight um, we didn't do it in the T-38, even though it was capable of it. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was all about um, emphasis on... on the, the, it, was a, a, it was seen as a next stage of training as opposed to, to fast jet training. Uh, we, we looked upon fast jet training as an intro to the fast jet types in the RAF. Um, all pilots in the USAF went through training on the T-38. They completed their T-37 training and then would go on to the T-38 before carrying on with the operational type to which they were assigned. And it could be anything from an F-4 to a C-141 or a C-5. So it was quite different in that respect. Yeah. So can you tell us about your first trip in the 38? Uh, I remember it being extremely noisy. The, the, the flying helmets that we have in the RAF were superb. Uh, I, the, I never had any issues with them. They were at times uncomfortable. If you wore them for a long time, they could... They could cause a little bit of discomfort, but, but by, by the standards of the day, they were, they were superb. The USAF helmet was a helmet that I, I couldn't get to fit properly, I remember, and, and we had to wear earplugs because they said it was extremely noisy. So you've put this, head, this, this helmet on your head and you've put these waxy yellow earplugs in your ear to try to defeat the noise, and then you get earplugs, and then someone's trying to talk to you when you start the thing up and can't hear what they're saying because they've got your earplugs in. So it was a, I found the environment to begin with rather confusing and I came down from my first drinking thinking what on earth was all that about because I couldn't hear an awful lot because of the, there was a lot of noise you've got your earplugs in um, and I, what I did was I went away and investigated trying to get the helmet to, to fit better and, and give me better attenuation of the, the, the internal sounds of the aircraft that I wanted to hear and cut out those that I didn't so it just took it was a, just a little bit of acclimatisation uh, really um, you also wore your parachute out to the aeroplane it was um, you put your parachute pack on in flying the flying clothing section or, and you went out and you strapped yourself in it had um, like cock fasteners and things like that on the seats in those days so it was um, very very different and it's it's it's, it's a, assimilating all those subtle differences that you don't think will make a huge amount of difference that actually do so obviously uh, i had reheat could you tell the power difference between that and the hawk on takeoff um well not really the, the reason was when you when you to take off in a Hawk you, you push the engine up to full power on the runway against the brakes and basically check the engine indications are all good let the brakes off and away it goes with the T-38 you'd run it up to full mill power as it's known which is dry power in, in RAF parlance and then check the indications of the engines in the normal way and let the brakes off and, and, and put in the burners and, and there would be a, a slight kick as they went as the nozzles opened um, but the, the acceleration was was probably slightly faster than a hawk but what, what what it did have was higher rotate speeds because it's got a much smaller wing so you you were on the ground for the ground roll was quite considerably longer um but it was a it, once it got into the air it was a very sprightly airplane it did go like a greased weasel it's known as the white rocket and it it, it, it would for a while it did hold uh, a climb to height record um, which was yeah by it, it was even faster than f-104 oh, in lightweight wow. yes it was yes and then but it was beaten by the f-4 didn't hold it for long but it was beaten for the Air Force. In dry power, it's a completely different animal. It's, yeah. it's not got a lot of poke at all. Uh, I think the engines were of about 2,000 pounds a side, as I recall. And then with reheat, they went to 3,000. So you, you, you have half, uh, 50% more power. But the penalty with reheat, after burner, sorry, is always um, fuel consumption. You, you burn fuel at an inordinate rate um, in, in an aircraft with, with after burner in. And some, that, that, was a, that was a subtle difference. Yeah. So what were your initial thoughts of um, the 38 on your first trip? Um, it was something. It seemed it was so so different to a hawk. With a hawk, you tended to sit. What I would assess is you sat on it 
rather than in it. And also, because of the inclination of the cockpit in the Hawk, which sloped from rear to front, you, you look down on the front much more, and that's, that gave you the impression of sitting on it with the pitot tube out in front of you. With the T38, I do recall when I climbed into it, it was quite a, quite a big cockpit, but you tended to sit in it. And the, because of the front of the aircraft was more level with you, you didn't quite get that impression of sitting on it as much as you did with the Hawk. So it was subtly different in that respect. The layout of the flight instrumentation was, was pretty standard, as with any trainer. Um, you only have, obviously, your basic flight instrumentation, attitude indicator, you've got a horizontal situation indicator, airspeed, mark, altimeter, rate of climb and descent. All these were clustered nicely in a group. And then you have all your engine instruments just forward of your right knee, up the instrument panel there on the right-hand side. Um, fuel management was down just forward of your right knee, as I recall, I think. Um, and then you had... Um, avionics selections and controls were down the right hand side or, or just in front of you on the lower side of the instrument panel but everything you needed to see and focus on in flight was right in front of you so it was, it was good in that respect so can you talk us there through your actual flying training to be qualified you did two phases of training you did a conversion to the type so basically i was introduced to the aircraft and, and went through a simple conversion course um there was a short course for experienced pilots as they called it uh, you were not an undergraduate pilot um so you were introduced to the aircraft the differences etc and then you you were qualified to fly the aircraft and then on completion of that course which was quite a short one wasn't that long you then went on to join what was the the pilot instructor training course itself so you went through the course as a student quite a useful thing actually because you then experience what your fellow trainee they're called trainees they're not students they're trainees because you're not a student anymore these are guys who've come off an operational type of some sort or they are what in the RAF is referred to as a creamy these fellows are called FAPES a first assignment instructor pilot so you've you've effectively come out of training on the T38 and you go back to be assigned as an instructor uh, on, on a first assignment as an instructor pilot, as a FAPE. So we had some FAPEs on the course, um, myself as a, a foreign national. It's strange being a foreigner. You never refer to you. This is the other thing you, you get used to, is that you're now a foreigner, which is something um, you've not had to deal with in the past. Um, and um, it's just different. The terminology is different. The language is different. They thought I was kind of quirky. You know, from because you're from the old country, and um, but but they do respond to the sense of humour. The British have a, a very good sense of humour, and, and they like that. And uh, I enjoyed the course immensely. It was great fun. It was very different, very different regime. You would not believe two nations would go about doing the same thing in such different ways, but they do. Um, but it was great fun nonetheless. So I did the, to, in answer to your question, yes, I did the conversion course, and then following that, I went through the course doing the pilot instructor training itself, um, where. You sit in the back to learn how to be an instructor, even though I'd done the job at Valley, and then ultimately move to the, the, the next phase where you learn to sit in the front, and then you graduate, and then you move on to the staff. So can you tell us some of the flying you actually did over there? Um, well, it was, it's, it's, as I said, oops, excuse me, um, it's, it's not necessarily, um, as we would associate, for instance, with the Hawk, as being fast jet focused. It was seen as a next phase of training following your basic training where you, you learn about the fact the aircraft can fly at high speed. But there was, it was this interesting correlation, and, and it was something I became aware of. And, and you realise that you know, all the pilots went through the T-38. Um, it, was, it, was the, the, it was to teach you vast amounts of uh, flying on instruments. So you did the phases of training were contact. It's called contact, which is their, their, the name of general handling. And what, what would happen is, this is, again, where you've got the subtle differences between the, the RAF system and the, the American system. And again, this is my personal impression of, of, of how I saw things. I am not an official source. Yes, you, you did contact. And, and for us, with, with, when I was in the RAF, we, we built, it was a building blocks. You, you started on very elementary things, and then you built on those to build up towards ultimately what you, what you want the pilot to achieve. So when you were doing effective controls, which is your first phase in the RAF training, you then learn how to stall the aeroplane, and, and you, you build on everything you've learned. And everything you've done in the previous exercises is, is amplified as you, as you go forward. With, with, the, with the USAF system, we seem to do, on trip one, what was effectively the final handling test um, in terms of the, what you did on it. You did absolutely everything, as I recall. It was just a blur of information and activity. And after a whole series of, of these sorties, at the end, some, some of it's starting to stick. And it was, it was, yes, it was structured, but it was just a different way of doing it. 
So you did the contact phase, which got you into the handling of the aircraft, the quirks of the aircraft, and all of the things you needed to know about controlling it. Then you got into the instrument phase, and that really was an, uh, a, quite a, a busy phase. There's a lot to it. An awful lot of emphasis on procedural work. Most of the work in, in the United States is procedural. And that, I thought, was really good, because you, you got your head around lots of techniques on instrument flying, self-positioning using radio aids, etc., to, that, that were quite useful and some useful little mnemonics and things came out of it that were actually extremely beneficial so there's a lot of emphasis on that formation flying uh, learning how to fly formation obviously self-explanatory clues in the title and then navigation both at high level primarily at high level they call it t1 cross country um cross country in the united states is an entirely different animal to cross country in the united kingdom we can go from one end of this country and the other in about an hour and a half in a fast jet um, it'll take you about three days in the United States. Um, so, so learning how to, to go cross-country was an important part of that too. So it was, uh, there was a lot to it in relation to what, what had gone before. It was just, again, a different way. Um, and that was it, really. So it was all those came together, and you, you were teaching instructors how to teach the various disciplines that you had learned when you'd gone through the course. And how long did that process take for that part to be qualified? Uh, as I recall, it was about four months when I did because I, I, I it took six months for all my training initially because I had the first couple of months where I was assimilating and then doing my conversion course and just getting my head around the, the differences as it were between the United States Air Force and the way things are done and the, and the RAF um, what I learned was become an American that was the thing to do it was if you it was I remember one occasion uh, going out into the the Randolph mowers the military operating airspace areas they're all confined by the proximity of controlled airspace around them and the centre that we had to talk to, centre, was Houston Centre. And I it was Houston, H-O-U-S-T-O-N. So uh, Houston Centre, this is Toll Pfizer. What? So I was, Houston, Houston, who? Who's that? So I said, uh, Toll Pfizer from Toll Pfizer. Hey, hey, it's Houston, H-E-W-S-T-O-N. Houston. That's how you say it. Say it back to me. Houston, Toll Pfizer. That's good. What do you want? Right. And it went on like that. And it was, and it was, the, it was getting your head around the language because... And, if, you know, if you pronounce things with an American accent, things got done instantly. If you said it with a British accent, there'd be a, a bit of thought-provoking and, mm, hang on. So it was very, very different. Um, so, yes, it was, it was, it was tr- trying to get your head around the different concepts and the like. It's about, about four, four months on the, for, the, for the PIT course, the pilot instructor training course. It was four months. You were training pilots for the five, they're known as UPT wings, the undergraduate pilot training wings across the United States. There was Columbus, Mississippi. There was Laughlin. Del Rio, Texas on the Rio Grande. There was Reese in North Texas in the Panhandle. Vance, Oklahoma, out in, the, out in the plains. And then Williams, Arizona. They were the five undergraduate pilot training wings at the time. And you were training the instructors for training roles at those stations on, on assignments to them. So it was about four months, as I recall. Mm-hmm. So did you actually feel confident training these pilots coming from a different air force? In, I, I, actually, I did. It was, it was quite interesting because they look upon you as something quite quirky. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if they're briefed, hey, you're flying with that Brit guy, just give them a bit of, you know, give them a bit of latitude. Um, but no, the, the, they're quite quirky, quirky. but they, what they did um, relate to was you, you had some operational experience, which, which a lot of them didn't. Uh, I had come off uh, the two fast jet types that I'd flown at the time. So you had a little bit of uh, um, operational aircraft experience behind you. And if you, if you followed the basics, it was, it was not that difficult. But I introduced a few little, you'd bring in some little subtleties, you know, to think about things, you know. Uh, the things we do at, uh, you know, low-level navigation. We used to fly out across the Western Desert up towards the Rio Grande. And there is, unlike in the UK, where you were flying across parts of North Wales, where for a few minutes it's all rather the same. It's miles and miles of the same. And Texas, the west of it, is like a builder's yard, and there's just nothing there. And bringing in some of the concepts that you, you would teach, you know, were just, were just quite amusing to see, um, bring across some of the philosophies that I had learned and, and showing them how they worked. And they, I did not know that could you, that was, that was amazing. So I, um, yeah, I enjoyed it from that respect. And they did, they did relate to what I did. I, I, I didn't have any issues with what I was teaching. As long as I could get my head around the language, I was fine. Yeah. So did you ever conduct any DACT in Italian? No, none at all. It was all about, um, I said it was very much a training environment. All of the stuff was elementary handling, uh, be it in the contact phase, the instrument phase, formation and navigation. That that was kind of it, really. Mm -hmm. So how often would you fly? Oh, two, three times a day. 
Really? Yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was very, very busy. There were the odd days that we had the 101 days in the summer where the temperature would, would very often go above 100 degrees during the day and not drop. And they would believe, this is, this is another good thing. They had uh, some things you pick up on, which I thought was an excellent system, was this FITS, Fatigue Index Threshold System, FITS system they call it. And when the temperature got up to 100 degrees plus, um, your exposure to the external environment was extremely limited. And you had to be airborne in 45 minutes or so. So when it was caution, I believe it was an hour, if it was uh, warning, you had to be airborne within far less time because they didn't want you outside in the heat yeah. uh, for too long because of the the adverse effects of that and and dehydration and etc they had these fantastic crew buses um, that was what it did like they had purpose-built vehicles which which was a, it was a, a massive box van on the back of a gmc chassis and you stepped in this thing and and it's got an open door but the air conditioning is going full blast on this thing and you've got this blast of cold air as you stepped into it oh that's wonderful sit down they've got a vat full of ice water and you've got plenty of ice water to drink and you went out to the aircraft and you performed your walk round and you you started and taxied and went pretty quickly so it was it was all very, the husbandry was very good very well organized i loved that i thought that was that was something that was actually quite useful yeah. you know rather than our LDVs or whatever the transits we used to use in the days when we were trying to get eight aircraft, eight crew out to four aircraft on the tornado with their bags and yeah. G suits and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, how did the pilots view you? Was there any rivalry there? Uh, sometimes, yes, it was quite funny, you know. But you'd always come back to the fact that you know, yes, yes, I know you're much bigger than us, but I do believe I think we invented the jet engine, as I recall. <laughs> and I think you know we 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 have quite a part to play. Uh, and of course, the, the USAF, as, as I believe most air forces in the world, are modelled largely on the RAF model. Mm-hmm. We've had quite a part to play in your development. I think I regard you as I used to say to them, I regard you as a young nephew who's doing awfully well at school. <laughs> and uh, they 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 loved that they the the fact that you would answer back with humor and and come back at them um i say them they were great guys i loved them uh, we we they, they they were very good friends and uh, they were people you you got to know and and i loved the sense of humor sometimes and the way they worked um and it was great fun so did they have a you know, take the mick out of our aircraft because they were always supposed to have the superior turning and burning aircraft. Uh, no, they didn't actually. Um, I think it's because they had uh, most of them had had no exposure to any aircraft, or, or not a lot of them had worked in Europe after the the first Gulf War. Um, we started to get a lot of in those days. I said most of the the, the instructors that came through the system um, were from uh, multi-engine types. They were um, first assignment instructor pilots. So a large contingent of people who've got um, not the huge amounts of experience of working with, with another Air Force per se, particularly the RAF. After the first Gulf War, things changed. And in order to bring back an awareness into the system of tactical flying, we got an awful lot of ex-fast jet guys who had come back in. Um, so we got some F-16 guys from Spangdalem. And of course, they had seen Jaguars and worked with them. And they thought, actually, what the RAF did was phenomenal they thought you know what we did and the the capabilities particularly when you participate in exercises such as red flag you 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 know the air force the the RAF was quite rightly credited with with you know a high degree of capability and very very good at what it did Mm -hmm. and it was it was something to be proud of actually um that they they did regard the RAF as you know the air force very very good so it was good that you were held in high regard um, and that that was that again you could play on that it was it was it was really good you know again yes well you might do it that way but this is the best oh, way to come back oh yes you you, you they like you to because they, they would try oh yeah well we know what we're doing well actually yes but maybe but maybe not <laughs> and they, they, they would always sometimes they would stop and think they weren't sure if you were joking or not yeah and that was it was just very very funny but some of the guys i that i i met latterly um f-15 drivers f-16 guys f-4 lots of f-4 guys who came back and and, uh, and trained to be an instructors. They, they were now more, shall we say, um, aware of and conscious of the RAF and its role, certainly having taken part in the first Gulf War uh, and the part that it played. And, and you know, quite rightly, were, were very um, complimentary yeah. about what, what had happened and, and, and the fact that they played the part that the RAF had. To a more technical side, um, could you describe the cockpit for us? Was it the same as the front and the back? More or less, yes. You've you've got more, there were there were a few service selections that were operated purely from the front, um, but uh, the primarily it was it was more or less identical front and rear, um, a bit like the Jaguar. The, the the cockpit 
of choice or when the aircraft was designed was actually the rear cockpit so the front one is bolted on the front and if you look at the Jaguar the T2 the T2 cockpit is bolted onto the front of the aeroplane with the main cockpit where the where the single seat pilot would sit as was the case with the F5 sitting back where the rear seater would normally sit the reason being is obviously you've got far better lookout you're sitting more up on top of the aeroplane as opposed to down in the front of it Um, that said the T38 definitely has more of a level cockpit between front and back whereas the Jaguar and the Hawk had a slightly nose down relationship where the 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 rear seater would sit above and this was the beauty of the Jaguar in relation to the Hawk uh, sorry in relation to the T38 you could look over the head of the front seat occupant and your weapon system would be superimposed on the ground not on the back of his head Um, whereas in the T38 it was definitely more looking at the the seat in front of you because it was a level cockpit. So can you tell the difference Tell us the difference between the handling of the Hawk and the T-38. Yes, yeah, the, the T-38 required lots of energy to keep it um, a bit like a Jaguar, really, but it, it required huge amounts of energy to keep it on the uh, keep its performance up. Um, it was an aircraft that liked speed. The engines were needed. The higher you went, the faster you had to go. The the surge envelope was was quite tight up at high altitude, and it needed speed to keep the engines from going into the surge regime regime. The um, it had a slightly the control configuration was rather unusual because most aircraft certainly training aircraft that the RAF has when you when you stall an aeroplane uh, stalling is basically a way of um, maximising the lift performance and then going over the top and then going down such that the wing is producing no lift whatsoever as you approach a stall ordinarily in a training aeroplane you start to get buffets symptoms of the approaching stall as they're called the physical symptoms that will manifest themselves to you and most RAF aircraft were designed certainly the training aircraft to stall from root to tip so the root of the the wing, wing will stall first and it does that through what's called washout where the angle of attack the incidence of the wing is is higher uh, inboard than it is outboard so the reason being is to avoid nasty situations where one wing will drop rapidly the reason is that if you if you have a wing drop rapidly the aircraft could roll and potentially enter a spin you want the aircraft to be fairly docile in the stall so you try to engineer the the fact that it will stall from root to tip one wing by virtue of the way aircraft are designed and built one wing will generally always stall slightly ahead of the other you cannot you cannot get the perfect situation where they will stall at exactly the same time it's just a microsecond ahead of the other one so it will start to become laterally unstable as you go into the stall the t38 stalled from tip to root so the ailerons were inset in order to give you some degree of roll control when you were operating the aircraft in the stall. When you went into the heavy buffet, it was defined as the definite increase in buffet. And I, the definite increase in buffet. Okay, we've got elephants on the tail as opposed to cattle. Okay, so the, the, you get the buffet manifesting itself on the tailplane in the usual way. And then the aircraft would start to sink, and that was when you knew you had entered the stall. But without the inset ailerons, so the ailerons were set in from the tips, the aircraft would roll, and it could roll uncontrollably if you weren't able to control it. So by having inset ailerons, you could actually control the roll in the stall because the tips have stalled and not the route completely. Um, That's, as I recall it, I apologise for any scientists out there who might have another idea on that. But um, it it needed lots of energy. You, when you perform loops, you did so in dry power. So carrying out acro, as they're called, you know, aerobatics in, in RAF parlance, you needed to have the right speed. And, and typically, because they were done in dry power, you'd be starting at 500, 550 knots at about 10,000 feet. And it would take 10,000 feet to fly a loop in dry power. And the reason was all about fuel conservation, because as I said before, with afterburners, you use fuel at an incredible rate. That said, there was, there was kind of flawed logic to this in my assessment. I thought if you used the afterburner for a loop from a lower speed, you would spend less time performing the manoeuvre. And what's more, the afterburner would only be in for a matter of seconds or so. So the amount of increased fuel consumption would be such that you would actually achieve the manoeuvre in short order, shorter order, and not burn as much fuel as you would in the full dry power manoeuvre that took quite a while to yeah. undertake. So um, subtle differences, yes. Um, and it was more of a it was more of a fast jet than a hawk as well because it's a, it was a designed as a, a stopgap as a stepping stone to the Century Series fighters. Yeah. So it was a very very um, brisk looking aeroplane, and with the small rear set wings, it behaved more like a fast jet mm. than the hawk did. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, very much a, a much faster aircraft. As I said, particularly in the cruise at height, you you had to be up around 0.9, 0.9 plus mm. to keep the engines in their surge free envelope because the the higher you went the faster you had to go if you reduced the throttles rapidly at those sort of altitudes there was a risk of an engine 
you know, surging or going out. It was, it was uh, quite, quite a narrow performance envelope up at the top. Yeah. I remember on one occasion, uh, we were going from east to west across the United States, and we were up in the high Mach numbers. And they, hey, what sort of ground speed are you showing up there? We're doing Mach decimal, sorry, Mach decimal 90. Yeah, you're doing about 700 knots down here on the ground. And we had, we had a 200-knot jet stream up our chuff. <laughs> and it was quite, quite common to get very strong jets across the United States, obviously with the transition between the warmer air to the south and the colder to the north. I shan't go into the science of that. Um, the aircraft would be tearing along from east to west, but come the other way. Uh, sorry, from west to east, but come the other way from east to west, and you're facing down the jet streams, your, your, your flight time would double. Yeah, so you could go from... That, that's why when you were doing a T1 cross-countries, we used to plan them, because also the, the other thing you have in the United States is the different time zones. Yeah. So we went, when we sent off in the central time zone, as I believe we were, um, if we went, it was, it was, you could either go west, but if you went west... You, and then had to come back east, the next day would be very short because you know, not only did you, uh, you could come back faster, but you had fewer hours in which to do it to yeah. achieve the aim. So you had to be conscious of the time zone changes when you were flying around the States, which is something we don't think about exactly, here, yeah. um, because they can seriously affect your crew duty day, how long you have to fly, um, what time of arrivals, etc. Because you think, oh, we'll be on the ground at five o'clock. But if you go through two time zone changes, actually it's going to be seven o'clock. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, it's something you had to be aware of. So I've got to ask, which do you prefer to fly, the Talon or the Hawk? Uh, I liked them both for different reasons. Uh, I really enjoyed the Hawk. It was very serviceable. It was a lovely aircraft to fly, delight to fly. Um, it has a much tighter turning radius. Uh, good, good aircraft for turning. Uh, aerobatics, excellent for aerobatics. Um, the T-38 was um, an aircraft that was... So we, I wouldn't say it wasn't as good as aerobatics, but it flew different kinds of acro, as we said. Um, it was just so different. I liked them both. Um, if I had to pick one of the two uh, as a training aeroplane, I think I would go for the Hawk. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why the T-45 Goshawk, as it became, was procured for the US Navy, because it is a very good training aeroplane. Yeah. It still ranks as probably one of the best, if not the best, fast jet trainer. So how long did you spend in the States, and did you enjoy it? I did. I loved it. Uh, we spent about... It was very different. It called for a very open mind, as I said right at the outset, because you wouldn't believe that two nations would go about doing the same thing in such different ways. And one, But once you got your head around it, and uh, the, the philosophy was, as I said right at the outset, become an American... Um, it was great and you know saw a lot of the country uh, living out there was phenomenal my kids came back thinking they were americans <laughs> and when we came back to germany dad we hate this place we want to go home i've got bad news kids um it was a bit like that um so no i loved it yeah i was over there for about two and a half years um a lot happened while i was over there particularly back at home because we had the first gulf war in 91 so i was in the in the middle of my my exchange tour watching all this unfold on cnn so, yeah, but uh, no, it was really, really good. Could you tell us what happened when you came back to the UK? Yes. Well, while I'd been away in the States, uh, the, the main focus of interest back at home had been the first Gulf War. And I, I'd watched um, on CNN all this unfolding in 1991, um, watching with interest what was happening. So when I came back to the UK, um, I was told I was going to be um, not so much short-toured, but basically I was now needed to go back to the UK or back to the Tornado Force as a flight commander QFI on, in, on, on the training side to look after, well, not look after, to, to come back on to, to basically you're the flight commander training um, in charge and supervising training on the unit uh, with 14 Squadron in Germany on the Tornado again. So that involved coming back to the UK, which we did. We had a little bit of uh, reacclimatization uh, back into the UK regime, uh, back into the RAF. The, it, what amazed me was when I came back was how different the RAF now seemed. It, all was, it was all so alien in comparison to what I'd been dealing with, particularly in the last year with the American Air Force, because I'd, I'd become immersed in it and I'd become an American and, and that was how I did business. So how long did you spend on the Tornado on, on this tour? On 14, I went back, I arrived on 14 back in uh, 19... 92 um yeah and, and then from 1990 i had a slight medical problem uh, which precluded my operating a single pilot airplane um some I'd, I'd had a visual disturbance of some sort I'd, i didn't quite know what it was I, I now believe it to have been something along the lines of what when was a, <laughs> i'm not a marathon runner by any stretch of imagination but i remember paula radcliffe i think she she complained of something to do with like a visual disturbance or something i think when she talked about marathon running i, I had this visual disturbance which i 
went to the doctor about basically he turned around and as a result of some investigation said well you know temporarily you can't fly a single pilot airplane to establish what the cause was um, and they thought I had a migraine. As a result of that, I finished up on a short ground tour at Benson on the, on at HQ One Group Flight Safety. Um, now, ordinarily, we pilots the the prospect of a ground tour is enough to fill you with dread. Any ground tour, but they are a necessary evil. Uh, evil's probably the wrong word. Sorry about that. They are they are a necessary thing to do. Um, um, and, but for me, I moved into the world of flight safety and was the group flight safety officer at headquarters one group. And, and for a pilot, I, I found it fascinating. If ever you're going to be very much at the forefront of why things go wrong and analysis as to how things happen, why things shouldn't happen the way they do, this is it. You, you're very much dealing with accidents, incidents and issues that, that pilots face when things aren't going their way. So it was a fascinating tour from that respect. I didn't do very long there. Um, because very shortly thereafter, I got a call asking if I would like to go, was there an answer, to be a flight commander on the newly formed 23 Squadron, which had emerged at RAF Warnington alongside the existing 8 Squadron, which had uh, entered service with the RAF E3D Sentry, which had taken over the AEW role from the Shackleton following its demise at the end of the previous decade. So how did you find it going from the fighters to a multi-engine? Um, very different. The, the big thing is, and I would stress this to anybody that does it, you've got to be willing to make the jump. It's one of those, it's an entirely different philosophy. Um, the big thing about the Sentry was not only is it a multi-engine aeroplane, it's also a crew aeroplane. And, and with a crew, you're greater than the sum of your parts. You know, we all contribute to producing the outcome as the crew. And if, if the crew aren't functioning as a, as a crew, as a proper team... Um, things can get more difficult and and if somebody's not doing as they need to do at the time they need to do it you have to start doing their job as well as your own so it really is a team effort and it teaches you about relating to people and working with people um i loved it to be honest because my ambition when we talked at the uh, at the outset about you know, wanting to join the ref my ambition had always been to be a pilot, but I had this perverse logic as a teenager that perhaps joining BEA or BOAC would be easier than joining the RAF because my father had always um, suggested that, that getting into the RAF was a very, very difficult thing to do. They only take the best son and, you know, don't be surprised if it doesn't all work out. He was, nevertheless, he, was, he encouraged me and with whatever I wanted to do. So I had this perverse logic that, that going to be an airline pilot would be far easier than joining the RAF. As it happened, the, the airline system was closed down because the College of Air Training, which was then seen as the way into that world, closed in the early 70s when the fuel crisis started to bite. So the RAF was the only option. So to come now to do another ambition that I had always had, to fly serendipity there it goes a um a multi-engined airliner type aircraft um big big aircraft a 707 uh, was an ambition fulfilled so i loved it and it was one of those things i'd always wanted to do so i i was more than willing to make the jump i was um uh, having gone across the multi-engine world um, I was aware of the Battle of Britain Memorial Flight at Coningsby. I mean, who wouldn't be? And uh, one of my colleagues at the time was, was serving with the flight at, at Waddington. And I you know, how to get into that. And, well, you need to do this, that and the other. And I thought, well, I've got all that. I'm, I'm, I'm qualified to do all that. So, and I, I crikey, you know, <laughs> could I do this? So I went across to Coningsby and uh, spoke to the then OC Opswing and said, look, if ever you need uh, somebody to fly your heavy types, Lancaster or Dakota, who um, can give you as much time as you want and would bite your arm off to be able to, to do it, I'm your man, give me a call. And I was very lucky because literally within a matter of a month or two, I got a call saying, would I go across and have a chat? So I went across and had a chat uh, and we talked about what, what the role was, suitability, etc. And uh, I was very lucky. I was, I was absolutely delighted to be afforded the opportunity to fly two of the most iconic aircraft ever to have graced the skies with the, with the memorial flight they being the obviously the lancaster b1 pa474 and the stablemate the c47 dakota za947 so in 2001 you became bomber lead what did this entail right bomber lead the bomber leader is responsible for the training and standardization of the heavy crew the heavy bomber pilots so your your job effectively is is the the qfi uh, the one qfi on the type uh, for the Lancaster and the Dakota. So you convert pilots who come to the flight into training the types. Um, it's, it's a steep learning curve. It's, it's not an OCU. It's, you rely on the experience and knowledge of those who have been selected. Uh, you have to fall back on that. As I said, there are not the flying hours to, to, to 
give people as much training as you would like. So it's very much a training on the job. You, know, you go through the academic side, and um, but but the flying training requires on, on your knowledge and experience, and you, you cut your teeth pretty quickly. And when I was, as I said, because of the experience I had had when I'd gone through, and certainly learning about tail, I learned about tail draggers from that, as they used to say. There was a, there was a there used to be an article in a magazine called Air Clues as I learned about flying from that. Well, yeah, you learn about flying, as I said, right at the outset on every sortie. And, you know, I learned about tail draggers from that. So I then set about introducing the concepts of tail draggers, what the shortcomings were, what they can do, uh, and, and the physics of them, and why, if you let the physics get out of the box, things start to happen that you have no control over. And, and so you've got to keep the physics under control. And you do so by adopting the following. And so we go through all that and train the pilots on, on say, elementary um, tail dragger techniques. They go into the systems. I mean, what says the systems are? There's a fuel tank, there's a pump, and there's an engine, and there's a pipe. And it's, it's, it's literally like that. And uh, the, the, you, in comparison to modern aircraft, I mean, yes, they all have similar components, but they are very, very simple. And you also emphasize the fact that you are the safety brake. It behoves you to monitor all the indications, to work out what's happening from any abnormal indications, um, and also from any malfunction of the engine. Uh, the engines are the Achilles heels of the aircraft generally um to take care of what's going on so there's a couple of convex trips uh, for the dakota then you go into asymmetric simulated asymmetric uh shut an engine down in flight feather the propeller uh unfeather the propeller restart the engine do the same in the lancaster go through all that asymmetric handling talk about that you do all that in, in two or three sorties and then then you let guys loose and you supervise them on the ground very rapidly into uh, display flying and then they're off on their own so do you have any highlights from your time on the bbmf Oh, the whole thing. <laughs> oh, it's, it's impossible to list really all of them. I mean, the most, the most important thing for me about BBMF was what it stood for. And it was the great honour and privilege to meet so many veterans, um, wartime crews who did what they did. Um, the, it's aircraft, uh, a, a classic, an aircraft that is an icon to an air show. And all you have to do is turn up in it. You don't have to do anything with it specifically. So it's a different type of, of air show, really. You just have to show off the sight and the sounds of that aeroplane in the air and bring it to life for the public. Because when they're looking at it, you know, 70 years down the line from when it was doing what it was doing during the Second World War and the crews were flying them as they were, you, you're bringing to life the sight and the sound and you're seeing exactly what your parents and grandparents saw during the war when you bring that aircraft to life and put it into the air. And there's, I defy anybody not to be moved to the sound of what I described as Merlin song. You've heard of the three tenors? Well, we used to present the four Merlins <laughs> and, and they would reverberate and resonate across the airfield as no other aero engine can. And when you've got that chorus of the four of them together and they're singing their hearts out at... 2850 rpm and plus seven or plus nine inches boost i defy any pilot not to have the hairs on the back of his neck stand up and when you're sitting in that airplane with those engines singing their song like that like kira takanawa at the top of her very high operatic octaves and these four merlins are doing the same thing on your wing and they're sitting no more than feet away from you there is uh, nothing else that any pilot could ever experience like that and for me it was the greatest privilege in the world to be sitting and, and in command of the most one of the most iconic aircraft ever to have graced the skies um, and to be one of the three aircraft that I think made the RAF what it is you know Spitfire, Hurricane, Lancaster they, they played such a big part in in shaping the RAF and, and turning the Air Force into, into what it is and what it became and helping save the country from oblivion it's just it was just to, it was so spiritual to fly it wonderful thing to do. Lucky man indeed. Yeah. So how long do you spend on the BBF? Uh, I did 11 seasons. Uh, I joined in 99 at the end of the 99 season, did all my conversion training, um, and then went all the way through to 2010. And I, I did, as you say, I did uh, in 2001, became the bomber leader. So I did almost 10 years, a decade as the bomber leader. Um, fantastic time. It, it went in 10 minutes, but it was 10 years of the most iconic, enjoyable, spiritual flying you could ever wish to do. So you ended your uh, flying career flying the Dominique. Can you tell us about this? I did, yes. Um, the, 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 following the SDSR of 2010, uh, there was a decision to draw down the number of crews on some of the frontline aircraft, and one of the aircraft that was affected by the drawdown was the, the, the Sentry. And in fact, the decision was taken for 23 Squadron to disband, and the, the sole operational squadron for the Sentry would become 8 Squadron. Um, I had very limited time to go. I had barely three years left in service before my natural retirement date. 
Um, and I had always wanted to go down to Cramwell, certainly in my latter, latter time, and, and uh, either do multi-engine pilot training on the King Air at the time, or, or preferably to have gone on to the Domini, where you were training rear crew to fly the multi-engine types in the REF. It was a very well-kept secret, the Domini. Um, they, they did all sorts of things in an aeroplane uh, in all sorts of roles. So we taught crews um, about uh, low-level navigation, about medium-level navigation. We taught them about maritime patrol, and you had a radar in the front of it. Um, when the Domini entered service in the 60s, it was primarily used as a platform to train rear crews to fly the V-bombers, uh, Vulcan, Victor, and Valiant. And it was configured in the back end to enable that to happen. But latterly, as those aircraft were taken out of service and the, the attack aircraft of the day and strike aircraft became the tornado, the, the, the back end of it was reconfigured um, to represent more of a fast jet rear seat environment in which navigators could learn how to, to control and operate a radar in much the same way as they would in a tornado or other fast jet. So there were so many disciplines that you, you were able to teach the rear crews that were involved a whole regime of, of different flight operations. So it was a, a delight to fly. It was a classic British aircraft. It had the old ram's horn control column, a bit like Concorde or a VC-10. Um, it was so British. And it has, when I remember climbing in and looking at it, I mean, here in 2009 when I first got in it, and I looked at the box and I'm going... Pi, P Y E, that's an old radio thing, and it's the old remember P Y E Pi. They're the old, and you see switches that are something out of the, the sort of thing you saw in Thunderbird or something like that. It was absolutely <laughs> superb. It was the de Havilland Jet Dragon, was what it was called when it was built by de Havilland in the 1960s. And it was the only, the success of it was, it was the only aircraft of that size in which you could stand full height, and I could stand up in it because the cabin was, was a complete circular cabin. And you could stand up at it full height. Every other airliner or every other little executive jet, you're crouching down and you're walking through, avoiding banging your head. So that was the success of it. But it was a it was a it was a really enjoyable job. Fifty five squadron, which was uh, which it had become at that time. Fifty five open brackets R, closed bracket squadron, at Cramwell, and uh, it was it was wonderful. Really, really enjoyed it. A whole different world. So overall, did you enjoy your RAF career? I did. It was it's something as I said at the outset. My ambition had always been to be a commercial pilot, and I came to the conclusion fairly early on that commercial flying wasn't for me. It would have been an escape jet. It would have been a way out if, if I had not been able to fly any military aircraft again um, and had things got so desperate that I needed to seek an alternative um, aviation-related venture, then that would have been the way. But it wasn't really for me. Um, I don't wish to be disparaging in the commercial world, but you tend to operate aircraft rather than fly them. Whereas in the RAF, you flew aircraft, and you were you were very much at the forefront of of, of controlling an op- and a, a a fast jet or a training aircraft or a um, big multi aircraft. It was the only organisation in the world that, that could let you do so much with so many different aircraft times at so many phases of your career. No other organisation in the world would let you do that. And when I was operating a sentry at any time in certain phases of flight, if I wanted to take the autopilot out and fly it manually, I could take the autopilot out and fly it manually. Um, the company it wasn't going to complain because I did so, because it was compromising the fuel efficiency as such, because it was important to understand, get your head around the handling of these aeroplanes and what made them tick. And I think that's part of the, the philosophy for military pilots, is that they explore the flight envelopes of aircraft as no other flight crews can do. And, and I, I think that... Um, the opportunities that are afforded to military pilots are second to none as aviators, and, and my view would be long may it continue. Well, Stuart, do you have any hobbies? I do. <laughs> I have lots of different hobbies. It used to be model aeroplanes, but I, my crash rate was horrendous with those, so I gave up with those fairly early on. So I, I've always had, a, again, picked up from a father, an interest in, in railways, and uh, I enjoy um, um, rail travel, and I enjoy uh, tinkering with models as well. I learned so much about electricity, uh, how it all works, positive and negative, simple mechanics from tinkering with mountain model trains in my early teens. Um, and I still enjoy it today. It's a way of therapy and something to relax and enjoy. I enjoy photography. Um, I enjoy walking, being out and about, things like that. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what I like doing. Do you have a favourite aircraft you've flown? Oh, uh, well, for all the, the, the right reasons, it has to be uh, the world's most iconic four-engine bomber, um, which is the Lancaster. It was... Uh, it, it was an unbelievable experience in, in so many ways. Uh, as I said, 
Uh, I've often been asked what it was like to fly. Um, you've got the physical side, um, the, the, the fact there was a tail dragger, quite a demanding aeroplane, but you've also got the spiritual side, what it stood for. And I, as I said at the outset when I was talking about BBMF, the, the most important aspect of those aircraft is what they stand for, the veterans and, and what they did for this country, and that was why it was so special. Is there an aircraft that you wish you could have flown? Probably the Wright Flyer, the day before the Wright Brothers. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? No, not at all. It's, uh, it's always been a passion, a hobby, an interest. Uh, I love it to death. I love aeroplanes. I love what makes them tick. Uh, I've, I've always been fascinated by them, uh, even in the modern era. And the science of flight is still something that um, is really very important to me. Um, so I love to try and understand what makes them tick. Well, thanks very much for being on this work. You're welcome. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you like what we do here, don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.